Welcome to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law and Virginia Appellate Attorney Steve Emmert. Listening to oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia is one of the best ways to stay abreast of both substantive and procedural law. And today's smart lawyers know that any case, even if it is outside their practice area, can offer a learning opportunity. So, listen, enjoy, subscribe, and leave us feedback. Mr. Emmert, you may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning. I'm Steve Emmert, and in this appeal, I represent a dentist who is aggrieved by the Department of Transportation's refusal or failure to process his claim for benefits under the Relocation Assistance Act. In preparing for this argument, it occurs to me that as far as the legal issues are concerned, the chess pieces are pretty fairly effectively set up in the briefs, and I don't propose to repeat what we've said in the briefs. What I'd like to do is underscore a few key issues and make sure that you understand a couple of the facts that were asserted and then uh, allow the solicitor to respond. Anyone who's ever experienced a corporate or governmental runaround will recognize what happened here in what's supposed to be an expedited process. VDOT asked for and got plenty of information on the dentist's claim and then asked for more months later. At page 117 of the appendix, you'll see the dentist's lawyer pleading with VDOT 70 days, that's 70, 70, not 17, 70 days is a reasonable review period. Well, if only. In reply, VDOT raised what it described as a couple of questions and concerns. That's a quote from page 154 of the appendix. Four months later, the dentist lawyer pleads again at page 193, saying, please decide this, it's been months. VDOT wrote back on the next page of the appendix, 194, saying, basically, okay, we've got it, we'll get back to you. Well, you've seen what happened next. There were more delays, all without a final decision. And this absence of a final decision is why we couldn't appeal through the administrative process. If there's no final decision, there's no appeal. Because the trial court decided this case on demur, we didn't get a chance to prove that VDOT's request for things like serial numbers and so forth was a pretext. We alleged it in paragraph 42 of the the petition. I think that's on page 7 of the appendix. We were able also to prove that the relocation for VDOT, uh, the relocation agent for VDOT, had conducted a full inventory in March 2016. And so Mr. the request that they were making. Kelsey, if I may um, interrupt you with a question. Sure. Um, you mentioned earlier that the briefs adequately addressed the legal question, but Judge O'Brien's letter opinion uh, did a pretty thorough job of researching the, the background of the statute, including the federal. Uh, statute and the federal interpretations of the statute. Does that have relevance to you? Well, if if I were bringing this case under federal uh, relocation law, I'd be a lot worse off. Virginia's statutes are more favorable to, uh, to, to relocation benefit claimants than are the federal statutes. I recognize that. But the way we have it, the, the statutes in Virginia create an obligor and an obligee They mandate payment by the obligor to the obligee, and they even state that the purpose of the act is to benefit the obligee. I don't think that you have that in the federal statutes, and the way that our our General Assembly has structured this is more friendly for the taxpayer in this case, or the, the, the landowner in this case. So a finder of fact should have been able to review this evidence and conclude that VDOT's process was a shell game, that they already had the information they were asking for. Now, at this point, 
the dentist is left with no no remedy, no approach other than to bring his case to court, and that's why we're here. May I have leave to respond in the time remaining to me? 11 minutes, 29 seconds. Probably won't use it all. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court, Martine Ciccone for the appellee. This case presents a narrow question, whether the provisions of the Relocation Assistance Act requiring VDOT to make fair and reasonable relocation assistance payments to persons displaced by the Commonwealth's exercise of eminent domain creates a private right of action. The answer is no for three reasons, all of which indicate that the General Assembly did not intend to afford displaced persons the right to sue to enforce the duties imposed on the agency under the statute. First, the language of the statute itself contains none of the clear evidence of intent this court requires before recognizing an implied private right of action. Second, the statute contemplates alternative enforcement mechanisms, specifically administrative appeals and the potential withholding of federal funding for VDOT's improvement projects. And third, the provision contains no waiver of the Commonwealth's sovereign immunity, which reinforces the conclusion that the General Assembly did not intend to create any private right of action at all. I'll talk through each of these reasons in detail and then address the arguments my friend makes in support of the position that the statute does afford a right to sue. Turning first to the bar this court has set for finding that a statute creates a private right of action, in Cherry v. Virginia Health Services, this court explained that where, as here, there is no right of action expressed in statutory language, the court will not recognize a private right of action by inference unless there is demonstrable evidence that the statutory scheme necessarily implies it. It is not enough that a statutory provision has allegedly been violated or that a plaintiff has a stake in the controversy or a right that will be affected by the disposition of the case. This court has made clear that only evidence that the legislator intended, quote, this injured plaintiff, the right to sue this defendant, will suffice to establish a private right of action. Nothing in the provision at the heart of Mr. Fernandez's complaint, which is Code Section 25.1.406, evidences that intent on the part of the General Assembly. The provision states in full, whenever the acquisition of real property for a program or project undertaken by a state agency will result in the displacement of any person, the state agency shall make fair and reasonable payments to the displaced person. Most notably, the provision is directed not at the displaced party, but at the state agency responsible for payment. And it in no way suggests that a displaced person has a right to recover relocation assistance payments against the agency. In fact, Mr. Fernandez doesn't point to any language at all in Section 25.1-406 that he believes demonstrates the legislature's intent to create a private right of action. Instead, he argues that this court can infer such a right based on the absence of any language disclaiming a private right, pointing to the fact that a provision in the article of the Relocation Assistance Act concerning acquisition of real property includes such a disclaimer. But that gets the analysis backwards. The fact that the General Assembly included a disclaimer in another provision of the Relocation Assistance Act, indeed one in a completely different article, is simply not enough to meet the bar this court set in Cherry and other cases. By my friend's logic, any provision of the Act that doesn't expressly disclaim the creation of a private right of action would imply one by negative inference. Again, this result cannot be reconciled with this court's precedent. And to take Justice Kelsey's question, I think that the circuit court was entirely correct to look to the federal analog, which is 42 U.S.C. 4622. And 
uh, I disagree with my friend on the other side that the statute is, is different. In fact, if, if this court looks to the Eighth Circuit decision in Osher, um, which we cite in our brief, uh, the elements of the, of the statutory provision uh, that that court considered are very similar to this one. The provision is directed to the state agency responsible for payment. It does not have uh, what the Eighth Circuit refers to as rights-creating language that confers a right on the affected party. Uh, and as, as the circuit court noted, uh, it's not just the Eighth Circuit that's made that decision. Uh, there are several federal circuit courts around the country and also district courts that have looked at analogous provisions um, and have concluded that there is no private right of action. I think that's uh, particularly relevant in this case for a number of reasons. Of course, the statutory provisions are very parallel, but it's not just the similar language that makes those federal decisions persuasive. It's the fact that the Virginia statutory scheme was enacted in order to maintain harmony with the Federal Uniform Relocation Act. Um, as we point out in our brief, would you hire an appellate lawyer to handle your jury trial? Of course not. Trying cases requires a different focus, a different way of speaking, even a different way of thinking from handling appeals. So why would you ask a trial lawyer to handle your appeal? When it comes time to appear in an appellate court, trust a lawyer who specializes in appeals only. Steve Emmert limits his practice to appeals. Other lawyers consult him when they face tough problems in the appellate maze. Focus on what you do best. Call Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021 direct to find out how he can help you. Again, that's Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021. The federal government requires states to provide relocation assistance in order to continue to receive federal funding for their projects. So a state statute has to meet the federal standards. And for that reason, cases that interpret the intent of Congress in passing the Uniform Relocation Act are particularly relevant to the interpretation of the Virginia Act. Not Again, not just because the statutory language is parallel, and, and I disagree with my friend, in fact, it is parallel, uh, especially uh, Section 4622, which the Eighth Circuit considers an OSHER. But it's also because of the way that these statutes work together. So I would urge this court uh, to, to look at the way that the circuit court reviewed the federal decisions um, and, and to, to consider the federal decisions that we cite in our brief. Because the language of the statute... This is, this is Chief Justice Lemons. Um, suppose we agree with you on the uh, question of a private cause of action. Is there no remedy for Dr. Fernandez? Your Honor, if, if we're looking to the facts of this case, I think the remedy for Dr. Fernandez was exactly what the statute contemplates, which is that he was to go through the administrative procedures that VDOC has enacted that specifically allow for appellate review of a decision. And I, again, I disagree with my friend, Mr. Emmert, that uh, there was no decision from which uh, Mr. Fernandez could appeal. I think that the record at JA 198 and 199 makes that very clear. In June of 2018, when Mr. when the the agent responded to Mr. Fernandez's counsel and informed them that they were unable to proceed further with the claim because they did not have the necessary information, the letter says, uh, quoting from JA 199, "If you or your client are not in agreement with any determination made by the agency." Be advised that you have the right to appeal in whole or in part. If you wish to appeal, you must submit your appeal, et cetera. And then it also indicates that they have 
uh, provided a copy of VDOT's appellate procedures in, in the letter itself. So I think for Mr. Fernandez specifically, uh, there was a, a long process. They reached a stalemate because VDOT was unable to proceed with the claim without the necessary information. And Mr. Fernandez was free to appeal at that point, to go through the process of the multi-layer appeal procedures uh, that the agency has set out. Now, if I take your question to be a little different, to um, imagine what I would consider to be a hypothetical situation where the agency truly does not decide, if you imagine a circumstance where the agency just does not respond to a claimant's request, um, I think that this court's long recognition of a writ of mandamus would be the sort of uh, fallback or, or backstop approach to ensure that a claimant in that circumstance is not without recourse. What this court has said about a writ of mandamus is that it may be issued to compel an agent, uh, to compel a government official to act where the, where the decision is ministerial. Uh, now, in his reply brief, um, my friend on the other side argues that VDOT's decision in this case is not ministerial, and, and I agree with that insofar as the decision, the determination of what is reasonable for relocation assistance is a discretionary decision, but the, the requirement that VDOT must issue a decision is in fact ministerial, and I think that the best analogy to that case um, is, is Hilton, uh, where this court looked at um, the Board of Supervisors' failure to issue a decision on a site plan that had been submitted two years earlier and affirmed a trial court who said, we can issue a writ of mandamus to compel the board to make a decision, but not to decide exactly whether the plan would be approved or how. So I think we can separate the ministerial decision that the agency must act from the discretionary decision of, of how, it must, uh, how it must exercise its discretion. And I think um, it, it's important to point out that uh, there's a good reason why the administrative remedies um, are the appropriate way to proceed in this case. Administrative review uh, is premised on the idea of deference to agency decision-making. Uh, what is fair and reasonable for relocation, pay, uh, for relocation payments is a sort of quintessential exercise of discretion that requires agency expertise. For this court to recognize a private right of action, what essentially Mr. Fernandez is asking is for this court to make the determination or the circuit court of what is fair and reasonable. That is the kind of determination that requires agency expertise, and for that reason, any judicial review of the agency's determination should be deferential. The procedures that VDOT has set out allow for exactly that. If the claimant is unsatisfied with the decision by the, by the agency, the, the uh, claimant can pursue administrative remedies through the appellate process, and if he is still unsatisfied at the point of a final decision, he may pursue judicial review. But at that time, the de deferential standards that apply under the Virginia APA would govern. Um, what Mr. Fernandez is seeking to do is to sort of end run both the agency's procedures and the deferential review that would apply in the event that he was required to follow those. I'll say just one more thing about um, my friend's argument, and that is that this case is in no way decided by um, Edwards versus Highway Commissioner. The issues in that case were twofold. First, whether certain items were properly characterized as personal property or fixtures, and second, whether the trial court erred in staying condemnation proceedings pending the uh, owner's uh, process through the uh, Relocation Assistance Act. The language that my friend cites um, in this court's decision uh, was simply a recognition that the relocation assistance payments are separate from the 
constitutional, uh, the constitutional right to just compensation and to eminent domain proceedings, and that if a person is looking to obtain relocation assistance, he must go through the Relocation Assistance Act. What this court did not say is that there is a private right of action um, in that act. And for that reason, I think Edwards um, is just fairly immaterial to this appeal, except insofar as it recognizes the clear distinction between payments under the Relocation Assistance Act and under eminent domain. Uh, I have nothing further if the court has no further questions. All right, thank you for your argument. Mr. Emmer, you thank have you, 11, 11 minutes and 29 seconds uh, left. Thank you, Your Honor. I'll probably try to give you some change back from that. Um, in her excellent argument, the uh, the solicitor points out a few areas in which we just read the law differently. We read Cherry differently because, as we pointed out in our opening brief, this statute necessarily implies this right. Um, and as, as well, as she touched upon, the language in Section 417 would be completely superfluous if her reading of the statute is correct. The General Assembly would have put it in for no reason whatsoever. We differ on whether a private right of action is necessarily implied accordingly. The, the language she cited on pages 198 and 99 of the joint appendix comes from the letter from the right-of-way agent for VDOT to Dr. Fernandez's lawyers. And it's where she points out on page 199 that the uh, agent indicates uh, a right to appeal. Well, there have been two claims that had actually been adjudicated before. The VDOT had paid those claims. And that's the right that they would have to appeal if they were dissatisfied with that. But there was no agency decision, which is a necessary precursor under fundamental administrative law, for any decision to be made that we can have an appeal. Um, Mr. Coney's concession on mandamus, I think, disposes of this issue as a meaningful avenue because Moreau versus Fuller states the modern view of the limits of mandamus. It, it doesn't apply where someone has to apply discretion. And there's no question that they will be applying discretion in deciding which of these claims to Mr. pay. Mr. Emmer, this is Justice Kelsey again. Um, yes. Under your logic, though, it sounds like you're saying that if you don't get a final decision in which, from which you can file an APA appeal to the circuit court, if you don't get one, you have an implied right of action, and you can just sue flat out. But if you do get a decision under uh, f from the department, and you can file an APA uh, appeal to circuit court, then you don't get an implied right of action. Now, if, I think that's, if that's correct. Viewed, that's really curious. I've never seen that before in any implied right of action precedent. Well, this is a situation that I haven't seen before either, where an agency that's charged with administering an act and, and processing claims has simply refused to do so. Uh, this is a, a, a hole in the otherwise uh, well, what the Commonwealth insists otherwise would be a solid law of precedent. But there's nothing for the for the doctor to do here. The, say the doctor, the dentist. There's nothing for him to do in order to pursue a claim that has not been adjudicated, that the that the department is simply sitting on. Um, there's Are you a parallel so sure to that an APA appeal cannot be brought to a circuit court under the Administrative Procedures Act uh, because a agency refuses to issue a final ruling because the, the APA requires them to do that. Why wouldn't an APA review be appropriate in the judicial context to make them do that? Because it requires a decision, an agency decision, in order to trigger the right to an appeal. That's the way this is well, set you, up. That's the way VDOT's – I'm sorry. 
what have you are you so sure though of that premise which is if an agency says issues a document to you and says you know what we're just not going to decide it ever wouldn't you be able to file an APA suit um uh, appeal to the circuit court and say their final decision is they're not going to give us a final decision so order them to follow the APA and give us a final decision I don't think that's that's available it's not a final agency decision and I could try to call it that and say it's final because they're not deciding it, but that that doesn't make it a final decision under the law. They have to adjudicate something, at least adjudicate being in, in the administrative sense. If Is they that don't true do under that, the federal APA as well, because I I, I I see the logic of what you're saying. I just don't know of any precedent to support it. Candidly, I don't know. I haven't researched the federal law for this aspect of that. But what I've seen here and what we've seen here, there's a parallel to in literature. Um, where something just wastes away. And if you remember the beginning of Dante's Inferno, he has the problem of dealing with the virtuous pagans, the people who lived before Christ, and so therefore had no ability to be saved. He wasn't going to put them in, in purgatory. He wasn't going to put them in hell. So he decided to place them outside hell in a ring that he called limbo. And that's where the doctor's claims are now. They deserve better than this. They deserve to be treated like any other claim that... VDOT has the right and the obligation to process, and that's why this case has to be remanded for trial. Thank you for hearing me today. All right. Thank you very much. You did uh, manage to give us back a, a bit of change. Thank you. Call the next case. Thank you for tuning in to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. My name is Ben Glass, and Steve Emmert and I provide these oral argument audios for free as a public service. If you're a fan of the podcast, I'd love to send you my book, Renegade Lawyer Marketing, absolutely free. Just visit www.benglassreferrals.com and I'll be glad to ship it to you. This book has helped thousands of lawyers across the country improve their lives and their practices. Again, that's benglassreferrals.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy these oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia.